There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. everyone and welcome to police off the cuff real crime stories i'm your host retired nypd sergeant bill cannon a 27-year veteran of the nypd guys tonight we have a stacked crew to do this show we got the whole anti-crime family i should say right that's gonna part of the police off the cuff youtube real crime stories family but first let's talk about this case this case is something that Long Island and probably the state and everyone probably across this country has been waiting for years and years and years for this case to be solved. And now that there has been an arrest in this case, there's no way on earth that this case is over with. In fact, we as investigators, former investigators, former NYPD, and everyone out there that has anything to do with the criminal justice system system, realizes that this case has just begun because there are other victims out there and there are other families out there and law enforcement and the investigators, the Gilgo Beach Task Force now, which will remember in the annals of law enforcement as one of the most proud task force ever put together because of the success in this unbelievable case that has been taking basically Long Island by the throat for 13 years and keeping people in fear as who is this person? And now that there's been an arrest, there's still lots and lots of questions. But guess what? Not only are there are lots and lots of questions, but we're getting lots and lots of answers. Because why? Because we're doing professional investigation, professional police work. And what better way to do it than to create a task force starting with a former chief of detectives from the NYPD, who also was the chief of the department, who came into Suffolk County in 2002 and immediately with the NYPD know-how started this task force. And I, Rodney Harrison, I'm giving him a lot of kudos and a lot of credit. Of course, there's many people involved in this case that need that need to get credit, need to get a slap on the back. And of course, we have the New York State Police. Fantastic job. In fact, one of the biggest leads that helped to solve this case was the lead on this Chevrolet, on this car that was used in transporting some of the workers back in 2010. Fantastic work. The FBI, right? With their agents, their resources, and the fresh eyes. Sometimes that's all you need is fresh eyes and a fresh mind to bring to an investigation to read over the evidence. I We always used to say in homicide that when you hit a wall, when you hit a brick wall, what do you do? Guess what you do? You start all over. You read the case folder all over again. And we used to love to use the expression on the NYPD, you shake the tree. You go out into the community and you talk to people. You bring people in. And in this case, what a brilliant idea it was to bring in the Suffolk County Sheriff. You know why? Because people in jails, people in prison talk. 
People in jails and people in prison know things. And they got some invaluable information from people in the jails. And all of these things bring together the art and the science of investigation, which I talk about all the time on this channel. Investigation is an art and a science. When you bring those two together, it's such a powerful weapon and no criminal on this earth is going to be able to defeat it. And we, I, in this monologue where I'm getting really emotional with this, I want everyone out there that's listening to know that this was fantastic police work. And it's not over with. It's not over with because we have other victims. We have other families with lost loved ones. And we're going to get to the bottom of this. And the Gilgo Beach Task Force is going to get to the bottom of this. The state police is going to get to the bottom of this. The FBI is going to get to the bottom of this. The Suffolk County Police, the Suffolk County DA's office, and of course, the Suffolk County Sheriff's office. Put those entities together and you got a powerful, powerful weapon. I've been talking long enough. Let me bring on some of our co-hosts tonight. And I brought I have two other folks from the NYPD. And the first one is a retired NYPD detective straight out of Brooklyn. Retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. How you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. How you doing? I'm doing well, Phil, and I didn't want to stay on, you know, with my monologue too long because I know you like to talk. You're Italian. You talk with your hands. and you Forget about it. <laughs> Forget about it. And we also have with us tonight another retired NYPD member of the service, retired NYPD sergeant, professor at Albertus Magnus College, law degree, all-around great guy, the man of reason, I call him, Mike Geary. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, Billy. Thank you for having me. Good evening, Phil. Good to see you. How you doing, Mike? How you doing, Mike? You know, I, I, you got to realize I have so many stars on this show. I, I, you know, I could get intimidated, but I'm not. I can take it. I can, I can step back because the next person, everyone should be intimidated by. Not only is she, she's from Long Island, which gives her a little bit more authority on this case than most people, but she's the mother of five. She's a, she's an actress. She's got a law degree. And she's brilliant. She now has her own channel. Mel and I'd like to welcome to the show Melanie Little. Melanie, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, Phil and Mike and Bill. It's like the core four of police off the cuff together at last. It's the first time since uh Herman has been arrested. So this is very exciting, you guys. I'm so happy to see so many people in the chat, and um, we have a lot to dig into. It's gonna be good. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Guys, I'm going to throw some concepts out there because I know Phil and Mike Geary, all fantastic investigators, members of the service. And Melanie, you're an attorney, so you're, you've got that built-in investigative edge. But one of the things I want to speak about right off the top is sometimes we, we use this expression, the media can be your best friend or your worst enemy. But my thoughts are, in this case, make them your best friend because we're going to keep coming up with new information, new evidence, and we want to put it out there. How about something that you maybe recover? How about from his house? We talked about on this show trophies. And we don't mean you won the softball championship. We mean from the perspective of a serial killer, a psychosexual serial killer that takes trophies to relive the act. And we could take, if they recover, in fact, from this home, from the storage facility, from his vehicle, from wherever, things that they think may have belonged to victims, 
get the, get it out there in the media. Let the media parade around with it. Phil Grimaldi, talk about that. 100%, Billy. Any items, listen, we think that the basement of that home could have possibly been what I'm referring to it as a torture chamber. Perhaps there are some items that belong to some of these victims. And then there could be victims that are uh, he still hasn't been charged with. So again, there could be unknown victims. If we find an item in that basement, take pictures of it, put it in the media, get it out there, get that item identified. Perhaps it could lead us to other victims. And also every bit of the crime scene evidence that's going to be located in this case it's going to be so important to this case. I mean, we have that other crime scene now out in uh, South Carolina where the avalanche was found and that location. I'd be searching that, you know, with, with a fine tooth comb. Mike uh, Geary, this is like, I feel like we're on the dating game. Bachelor number two. Uh, same question, Mike. <laughs> yeah, Billy, there's so many, there are so many times, I agree with you and Phil, there are so many times when the news media can be your best friend. I remember looking at the... Uh, the movie about the uh, Boston Boston Marathon bombing and the release of the photographs and the debate over that uh, of the images of the Sarnaya brothers and the moment that they actually the the uh, media got a hold of those images within like 12 hours or eight hours they started getting huge tips you know sometimes there are some secrets that the police need to keep absolutely but there are times when you know any you know images and, and uh, that you that help you gather evidence you know, it can put you onto a lead somewhere, uh, a neighbor in South Carolina, say, or, or a neighbor in Vegas or somebody who remembers him in Vegas when he was out in Vegas. You know, as Phil said, a little bit here, a little bit there, and it might lead to uh, a whole a whole treasure trove of information. Absolutely spot Absolutely. on. Uh, you know, my thoughts are that during the search warrant, they find jewelry. They find clothing that obviously doesn't belong to the wife or his daughter. Then whose is it? You know, let's get it out there. Let's show it off in the media. And someone might say, that's my sister's pendant or whatever. You know, and that that's how you get the community involved. And that's how you get the press involved. Melanie, I want to hear what you got to say. Oh, my gosh. I have so much to say. Born and raised Long Island. And me and Billy Joel and Rex Sherman and apparently Joey Buttafuoco. But... Um, we've already had three women come out since this story broke of his arrest and said that they have had conversations with him where he has brought up the Gilgo Beach murders, that he has told each of the three of them that this person murdered 10 people. We have seen um, two storage units owned by him in Amityville. I think they were both in Amityville. Um, one of them, we have a video of the medical examiner's truck being outside the storage unit which indicates to me that there must be human remains because they're not going to waste the uh, Suffolk County ME's time coming to a scene where they may potentially find something. You know, and that life-size doll, let's talk about that. They took out a life-size doll in a glass case out of his house and the media got some shots of that and now they've blocked off the street. So the media can't really see what's happening, but there's a lot happening right now. Melanie, very well spoken. And my thoughts are that you use the media. You play them yeah, like a Stradivarius 100%. violin. You don't, you don't let the media... Use you, you let you use them. Accused Gilgo Beach serial killer Rex Hewerman has led to yet another state. Police in Atlantic City, New Jersey, now looking into whether he may be connected to any cases related to sex workers there. That's in addition to police in South Carolina and Las Vegas investigating any possible ties to Hewerman. Eyewitness News reporter Stacy Sager is live in Massapequa Park. Stacy. 
Well, Sandra, investigators are now retracing more than a decade of this man's interactions. We know that Rex Herman met some of his alleged victims as far back as 2010. So the question now, where will the evidence lead next? In a case that continues to stun those who live here in Massapequa Park, one neighbor who lives right next door to the alleged Gilgo killer, reflecting on nearly seven days now of just about everything investigators could remove, from large backyard furniture to computers to Playboy magazines and much, much more. What's been the most significant thing you've seen them pulling out of this house? Guns, one after another. As the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office reveals now that the indictment against Rex Hurman is unsealed, they're questioning sex workers currently in the county jail system for any other potential connections to the alleged serial killer. We do know others have had close calls. Former escort Nikki Brass, who says Hurman solicited her approximately eight years ago. I had a really, really bad feeling. Like, my gut was, like, telling me I needed to get away from him. Especially when he actually mentioned the Gilgo case, she says. When he talked about it, he would, like, speak in a they and hypothetical. But he had this, like, smile on his face that made me really uneasy. She ended the date early. Meanwhile, the investigation now broadened to include Herman's property, both in South Carolina and Las Vegas, Nevada, and two of his Chevy avalanches with potential forensic evidence. Anything from uh, uh, hair to uh, a trophy, souvenir, jewelry, uh, anything that can help us connect these victims to that vehicle will be instrumental and strengthen the case. As these neighbors can't help but recall memories of Herman from the past that seem all the more disturbing now, like when he'd gaze over this fence or when he brought home a giant metal door, which he told his neighbor he needed to seal off a vault in his basement. But he told me back then, this is to protect my guns. Who gets a, you know, a, a door like that, a, a monstrous door like that to protect guns? So, so you're wondering what might have been, a, what else might have been behind? God only knows. Yeah, and there's plenty we still don't know. But today, Eyewitness News learned from the Suffolk County Sheriff that at least two sex workers currently in the Suffolk County jail system right now had prior contact with Rex Herman through various social media platforms, and they have audio recordings of him. Herman currently in a special unit in a solo cell in the county jail in Riverhead on suicide watch. You know, I like a lot of the things they're doing. And what it reminds me of, and I'm not uh, specifically saying this, but it reminds me of Comstat meetings where I would go as a robbery sergeant or as a squad sergeant and the uh, executive level of the NYPD would grill us and pepper us with questions. Did you do this? Did you contact this? Did you contact that? Did you talk to parole? Is he on parole? Did you go into the, you know, I mean, questions that, you know, you become an expert. And this what this reminds me of a question specifically that they would have asked at Comstat. Did you go to the Department of Corrections and use their databases and find out about this person? Find out all, and this, what they did with sex workers who were incarcerated in the jail. Brilliant, brilliant. And they're coming up with outstanding information. Phil, I could see you want to come forward. You're like a boxer. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, Billy, uh, one of the things that came to my mind was they have to stay in communication with the sex trade industry to see if there's any other workers, co-workers that have been uh, reported missing or haven't been around. Maybe they weren't reported. Uh, things like that or anybody that recognizes him, now that his picture has been in the media, his two vehicles have been in the media. There's so many things that need to be followed up here. And as you have said, and I think the media has reported, and I think even Rodney Harrison, the Suffolk County Police Commissioner, said the investigation is really ongoing at this point. It's really in high gear. There's so much stuff that needs to be followed up on. 100%. Um, interviews of family friends does he have any friends i don't know i don't know maybe he doesn't i don't know but interview family friends uh regarding his habits the locations he frequented we all live in a certain a bubble right we our world usually consists of about a mile or two miles square believe it or not i think that's true with most people you go to the same restaurants you go to the same supermarket canvas Get the detectives out there and canvas. Go to the restaurants that he goes to. You ever see anything weird about him? You ever see him here with anyone you didn't recognize? You got to get out there. And, you know, there's a favorite expression I love from the NYPD. Shake the tree. Shake that tree. And some coconuts are going to fall out of there. And coconuts that are important little gems of information. Melody. Yeah, uh, you know, they um, they interviewed yesterday his wife's sister because his wife filed for divorce yesterday in Suffolk County, which I thought was interesting, too, because they lived in Nassau County. So typically a divorce action would have to be filed in Nassau County where they lived. But I guess since he's going to be a resident of Suffolk County, since he's currently in the Suffolk County Correctional Facility, I guess um, that gave them jurisdiction in Suffolk for the divorce. But they did go to the sister-in-law's house and they knocked on her door and she did come to the door and she spoke to the press and she said something like, you know, I really don't know anything about it. I don't know. She tried to just in a nice way, get rid of them. But I'm sure, listen, if they're pulling all of this stuff out of this little tiny, what we now know is like this ramble down shack, there's no way that whatever they're pulling out of there, his wife never saw or didn't know about her. I mean, the house isn't very big, you know? I mean, and also that girl on TikTok is one of the other girls that um, came out and said he talked to her about the murders. She was in a networking group with him. So you bet that they are going to be interviewing every other single person that is in that networking group that he was a part of, because that was very current. That was very recently. 100%. You know, I always like to say um, that when you ask questions in an investigation, you get answers. And when you get answers, invariably, you get more questions. You have more questions to ask. Professor Mike, what do you think about that? Billy, I think the most, the, another thorough thing they can do is uh, look at all of his credit card transactions and his uh, debit card transactions. Maybe he's gone to a couple of motels over the, over the course of the years. Not that you're going to get friend, valuable forensic evidence from a motel that he might have visited, you know, 2010, but just figure out a pattern, the, the, the criminalistics, the, uh, what is what's his, what are his habits? We are all, as you said, creatures of habit. Did he visit a particular motel or motels? You know, uh, that sort of thing is very valuable. What was he buying? Um, when were when were charges made uh, for hotels and and things and restaurants and things like meals when his family might have been out of town? So that that gave him the availability to actually, uh, you know, wine and dine some escort before he may have tried to kill her. Um, so those things are absolutely important. And uh, it gives you a, 
uh, a greater sense of who this person is. And it, ju it just put, starts put, to put all those little pieces together. And you come up with a much more uh, thicker, th more thorough, you know, view of who this man is. You know, Mike, that's uh, that was actually my, no my number third. It was number three, the finance to a complete financial. So you stole my thunder, but that's okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, shouldn't okay. have given the cheat notes ahead of time. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah, I got them right you guys here. Are cheating. You guys are cheating using my notes. The cheat sheet, a full, a full financial background, but even more than that, I want to go back. And if it's possible, I want to go back to when he went to high school. I want to talk to his high school teachers. That's a long time ago, right? It's uh, he's fifty nine years old, so it's what? Uh, it's like 30, 30 yeah. something years ago. Right? Apparently, Graduate Billy Baldwin went to high school with him. He came out and made a statement that Billy Baldwin and Rex Hurman were in the same class in high school. So yeah. it's actually yeah, 40, 41 years ago. So, yeah. but over forty, yeah. could you could you still maybe could find. Some of his classmates, obviously Billy Baldwin, not that that matters, but he just spoke. But yeah. let's go out and shake the tree. Who knows this guy, right? What were his habits? Who did he deal with? I, my perception is he probably doesn't have many friends. He's probably a loner because he has this deep, deep, dark secret. that, And that is taking up all of his spare time. I, this is just what I'm seeing as seeing the type of personality is. I could be wrong, but I want a deep dive. He's lived his whole life in Massapequa. He lives in his family's home. Did he buy the home from his mom? Did she give him the home? Uh, apparently, you know, his finances, from what I'm hearing, and I don't have the financials, they're a mess. He owes a, 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 like a quarter million dollars to the IRS or something. So how did that happen? You know, how does that happen, uh, Melanie? Well, you don't pay your taxes. Ask a stupid question, get a smart answer. That's what happens. But uh, unless you know, you're Hunter Biden, was, unless you're Hunter Biden. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. He uh, he was spending his money somewhere else. You know, obviously, you know, if he wasn't, if he was a 1090 and not a 1099 guy, he was a yeah, maybe a 1099 guy, and he didn't pay his estimateds or whatever. That stuff adds up for income tax. But. Uh, I think they're going to collect, connect a lot more bodies to this guy. I mean, I that they got to not only trace his financials, but trace his whereabouts. Where has he been? Where was he when these four women were were killed in Atlantic City? Because I'm telling you, I'm starting to do a deep dive into that case, and there are way too many similarities. That was in 2006. Four women, all sex workers, found by behind a motel. I think this guy's been doing it for a lot longer since then, 2010, because you just don't become a serial killer in your late 40s. Are, am I right about that? No, you're, uh, you know, Dr. Joni Johnson, who was on our show last week, she was very concerned about that. And she's a forensic psychologist. She specializes in uh, sexual predators. And she said there is no way on this earth he just started becoming a serial killer at the age of 46. So she was very much concerned with that. 2007 whistleblower from the chat. Why was his family living in a horde with him with a dungeon basement with a metal door and guns for an entire small town? Why did no one say, hey, maybe dad is crazy and has some secrets? You know something? All I can say to that, and I don't know his family, I think they're probably crazy too. <laughs> you know? 
you know, his, his son, I don't think it was his son. I think it was his stepson. It was his wife's son had special needs and, um, they had a daughter together and she's now, I think in her early twenties, which grossly is like the same age as his victims. I mean, he seemed to have victims that were in their early twenties and she worked for him, I think at the architecture firm, but you know, I, I, that's what I agree. I mean, like how, how could they not know or not suspect? I mean, this guy's out until three in the morning. He's a married guy with kids. What is he doing out until three in the morning every night? Yeah, I, I find it, I would find it very difficult to believe that the family had no inkling that dad's a strange guy, <laughs> you know? Well, you, I, you, you know, Bill, you know, Billy, they, uh, from reading the affidavit, uh, they did say that uh, the times that the, uh, family members, his wife was in town. Phil's uh, Phil's breaking up. Phil, yeah, I didn't he, know he, 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 okay. No, he's, he's he's breaking up. You got to come out and come back in. Uh, let me let me go to. I just want to go to this videotape right now. I couldn't even I couldn't even hear him. It was it was breaking up so much. Um, this is the sheriff is responsible for the serial murders that plagued his jurisdiction for years. One of the things that we, we realized pretty quickly was that we thought that we had the person. Um, I, I think when we started looking at the evidence that we were starting to gather um, against him, we realized pretty quickly. In the interview, Toulon provided new details in the murder case revealing two former Suffolk County inmates had a close call with the accused serial killer, who officials say reached out to escorts in the weeks leading up to his arrest. There were two persons in our custody that he had actually reached out to, but never actually made any physical contact. Called them by cell phone, spoke to them, but that was as far as it went. Last week, officials announced the arrest of 59-year-old Rex Hewerman, who they say is responsible for at least three of the Long Island school murders dating back to 2010. You know, I'm standing here with uh, my law enforcement partners the Gilgo Task Force uh, to announce uh, the indictment of defendant Rex Andrew Heerman, 59 years of age. In all, 11 sets of remains have been recovered in the Gilgo Beach area of Suffolk County, New York. Right now, Heerman faces charges in the murders of Melissa Bartholomew. Megan Waterman and Amber Costello, who were working as escorts at the time of their murders. But Toulon tells Lawn Crime Network Norman could soon face charges in the murder of additional victim, Maureen Brainerd Barnes. There, there are certain times where we have evidence, but evidence to be brought to court, to be able to charge someone and hold someone uh, for a crime is a little different. So we want to make sure, you know, and the district attorney and the police commissioner have been very methodical and our approach in uh, addressing this and wanting to make sure that we were pretty concrete with everything that we presented to the courts, that we can hold this one and there was no technicalities. Toulon credits a multi-department task force comprised of officials from the Suffolk County Police Department, Suffolk County Sheriff's Office, New York State Police and the FBI with tracking down Hewerman and gathering an abundance of evidence against him. But I, I can tell you that you know each part of the task force brought a different, um, a different piece to uh, what we were collectively doing together, and so I think that was probably the success and the expediency of how.
a suspect was was uh, arrested and in I'll remove that from the screen. I, as I mentioned before, I think that bringing in the sheriff's office is really outside the box thinking, which paid dividends, really has paid dividends in bringing in, you know, victims of your of your men. And that's what I'm talking about. That's why, you know, even using we spoke at the beginning of this, this show, using the media, play the media like a Stradivarius violin. Don't let them play you, you know. Get the pictures out there. We're talking about souvenirs. Did he take some souvenirs? Uh, Joe uh, Laverick, thank you for the $5 super sticker. Do we know if the family actually lived in the house with him? Yes, they did. Apparently, they did. And the house looked, it was the worst-looking house on the block. The architect has the worst-looking house on the block. How do you make, you know, what does that tell you? Mike, what are your thoughts about the family and what they knew or what they didn't know? What do you think? Billy, uh, you know, responding to the, 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 the two subscribers in 2007, whistleblower, great question. Uh, I think, that, you know, hindsight is always 2020. Once we get Heurman, he's in handcuffs, we look back and we see all the little leads from 2010 all the way to the present. But when you're at home living with someone and you grew up in that house, like the daughter grew up in that house with, the, with their mother and father, you don't, you know, that's what you know. That's your world. You might not really notice that mom isn't really talking or she seems out of it or dad's just never really seems present himself and yeah he's got a bunch of guns but he's always had that collection of guns in the basement and i think it's just you know it, it like it, the tv show hoarders you ever watch it when they talk to the, the hoarders you know it starts out small and over the years it just grows and grows galloping incrementalism and after a while you then find out that you know Dad has 300 guns, and, uh, you know, now he's being accused of uh, killing three people, and he's a suspect in the fourth. Yeah, I doubt the family had any real uh, constructive interaction with each other over the course of years. I'm sure he was very, very, um, you know, placid at home. I'm sure he didn't really interact too much with them. I'm sure he wasn't having in-depth father-daughter conversations um, I don't think he was a touchy-feely, warm kind of guy. I think he was fairly cold fish, and because um, I think that's probably he has to be a pretty much of a cold fish to uh, be able to do what he's accused of doing. And so, like the BTK killer, you know, the the, the police all believe that that family had no inkling. Yeah, that dad was strange, but they had really no inkling how strange he was and what he was doing. So I think you know the family really did not know. They just didn't know. So that that the the weird behavior was yeah. their reality. That's yeah. who dad is. Dad's a weird guy that works into the in the city, takes a train uh, in early in the morning and come back comes back late at night and disappears a lot too. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what, Billy? Maybe he has an office in the basement where he does his architecture work, and that was kind of off limits to the rest of the family. And maybe this be. door, the door that they were talking about, that steel door, perhaps that was like a locked room. Well, I got my guns in there, but God knows what else was in there. You know, I mean, he was a gun collector. Apparently, they knew that he had uh, licenses for ninety-five guns. I was I believe it was, and he also had. Uh, in excess of that, maybe up to two or 300 guns. So again, uh, maybe that was, you know, like a man cave or it was his office. It was his business where he did his architecture stuff. So they didn't really 
go into that area of the basement perhaps and uh who knows what was lurking down there and it looks like the place is unkempt it's not manicured uh, kind of messy. Not manicured. That's, 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 <laughs> that's a kind way to a, say that. That's a stretch, not manicured. The thing looked like well, it was manicured with a sledgehammer. <laughs> well, well the, the, the area has a lot of nice manicured homes. Obviously, that home stuck out. So, again, I think, uh, Bill, you, you characterize it as 1313 Mockingbird Lane, which was the home of the Monsters, the TV show. So I think that kind of fits. If you look at the rest of the area and you look at that house, it looks like, you know, 1313 Mockingbird Lane. So, you know, like I said, perhaps he had that area kind of secluded and, and the rest of the family wasn't allowed to be in that area. And, you know, uh, maybe uh, when his wife went off on these vacations or whatever, he just did his thing. Melanie, like, you maybe, buy... maybe. <laughs> I can see maybe. Melanie. I'm, maybe. Like I'm like the teacher that's calling on you guys. Melanie, do you buy that the family didn't suspect anything? Maybe there was a torture chamber in the basement because That's the reason that his wife has been excluded as a suspect is because she was out of town during the time when he, when these three women that he's been charged with murdering uh, went missing and between the time they went missing and they were killed, they have, I did a, a show the other day. We read the entire bail application. The evidence is that his wife was out of town, either out of the country in Iceland or she was in New Jersey or somewhere else during the time periods that those three murders occurred. My son is in the chat, so I'm going to address this question. John uh, says, wasn't the wife's hair on the victims? Yeah, the wife's hair was on the victims. But what they're saying is it transfer. could have been transfer hair because, you know, she's got long blonde hair. Your hair sheds everywhere you go. And he could have transferred that hair onto the victims. I don't think it means that she was necessarily involved in that. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong. But also, well, you, you know, I Melody, think that's going to be the hardest thing for the defense to, to, to explain away. Because they do have one of his hairs, and they got three of hers on three different victims. Right, but the other the away? other thing is, uh, Melanie, when we spoke in great depth to this the other night mm -hmm. about modus operandi, which is method of operation, that operation. simply means how the perpetrator does a crime, the modus operandi. The second thing is signature. And Rex Uerman absolutely had a signature, and his signature thing were uh, camouflage burlap bags which right. were found on four of the victims and that's where the, I believe the hair from the wife was found so could it have been in the house and her right. hair was transferred onto that and he used that mm -hmm. as his signature item a burlap a camouflage burlap bag which also connects him it, it's just such powerful powerful evidence and then of course his hair was on one of the uh, on the bodies also, and we all know yeah. the pizza story. How they surreptitiously, I love that word. Sir, someone actually got mad the other night when I said, "I'm going to teach you a new word." I'm going to teach you a new word. They were like, "Who do you think you are, teacher? Who do you you know think you're smart?" No, I, I'm just. I don't think most people know what surreptitiously means. It's a great and, word. Uh, we used to use it all the time in the police department. Surreptitiously on the down low, we used to say, you know, Billy, yeah, think he, of it. He throws out garbage. And they recover the pizza, and it's not on the pizza box, which a lot of news it's stations incorrectly said. It's on the crust that he put in his big fat mouth and, and licked it and got saliva. That's where they got the DNA from. 
always Billy, eat th- your th- pizza crust. I don't trust people who don't <laughs> eat their pizza crust. Who doesn't eat their crust? There's a lesson here, people. I never thought I was going there, Melanie, but you <laughs> That's where I was going with that. Go ahead, Billy, Phil. Th- th- think about how lucky law enforcement is that these bodies were placed in that area, weren't found for about a year or so, and we were still able to recover. Phil, 10 years. Problems. They weren't found for 10 years. They were no, dumped in 2010. Found. 2010, they were dumped. They didn't find them till no, 10 t- years t- later. T- 2010 is when one, one of the first bodies was found. December yes. 11, 2010. Oh, I'm sorry. And, I'm and, sorry. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Two, uh, December 11, 2010 is when police officer John Malia was doing the canine search and he found one of the victims. And then uh, subsequently, they did an extensive search and they found, uh, I believe, all the other three, which that's how it became the Gilgo Four. But Whatever it was, Bill, it was a long time. It was a year or more. And we were very, very fortunate that uh, those pieces of hair uh, were left at the scene and they were able to be recovered. Perhaps the other bodies, there was no uh, DNA evidence. uh, And maybe that's why they're not charged yet. But there's going to be further uh, investigation on those cases, which there still may be some uh, some evidence that can tie to uh, to to Rex Uriman. Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, real crime stories. If you like real crime, true crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. And if you want to contribute to us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel membership with five different levels. And you see the folks in the chat in the green font, they're part of our our subscribers, our friends, our family on the YouTube Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories family. I just want to play a little bit of this uh, video right here. The investigation into accused Gilgo Beach serial killer Rex Hewerman has led to yet another state. Police in Atlantic City, New Jersey, now looking into whether he may be connected to any cases related to sex workers there. That's in addition to police in South Carolina and Las Vegas investigating any possible ties to Hewerman. Eyewitness News reporter Stacy Sager is live in Massapequa Park. Stacy. Well, Sandra, investigators are now retracing more than a decade of this man's interactions. We know that Rex Hurman met some of his alleged victims as far back as 2010. So the- 2007, she's wrong. Yeah, it was too. I, yeah. I don't want to play that whole thing. I just let, I want to talk about the sex worker community. And there is a community, especially now with. Uh, well, social media, cell phones, computers, all this stuff. And they talk to each other. I remember when I was uh, on the streets of New York City, some of the best witnesses you could ever get, and I'll use the, the old term, was a prostitute, a streetwalker. They saw everything. They were out on the street. And when you needed one of them to be a witness, they could be an outstanding witness. They, they, they were great for information, Billy. Whenever something happened to Coney Island, when I worked in the 6 squad, if it was on the street, we were always talking to the walkers, the street walkers. Absolutely. 100%. Melly, would you speak upon that whole community of sex worker community? Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, there is a very large sex worker community in Suffolk County. You know, there are a lot of those no-tell motels out there, like Hopog, Bohemia, Ronkonkoma, not to disparage any of those communities, but... One of these women was on the security camp footage from the Hop Hog Holiday Inn, and he was finding them back then on Craigslist and Backpage, which 
I think no longer exists. I think Craigslist stopped taking those type of ads and as did, and I think Backpage is no longer. So I don't know where these women or their pimps, I guess, are, are advertising them, but there is a large community. And I think that they are very good witnesses because they do know each other. You know, there is a, a camaraderie, I guess you could say, among these women who frequent the same hotels and the same motels and same websites. Absolutely. You know, I just want to say something too to get it out there is that uh, police are always accused of having a caste system of investigation and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, police, they want to find out who the bad guy is and they want to bring closure to these families. These are human beings and they were murdered. And they're not saying, oh, this is a street worker. I'm not going to, or this is a sex worker. I'm not going to work as hard in this case because her life didn't matter. Her life did matter. And they have families and loved ones. And, and look, look how hard they worked on this case. And, you know, there were some ups and downs, of course, in this case, that some big bumps in the road. But once they really got focused, it was amazing how quickly uh, they got answers in this case. Mike? Yeah, Billy, I was thinking back as you were just mentioning this. My, my, the last rape I handled when I was a sergeant at the Rio was a, um, was a prostitute. We found her about 6.45 in the morning, and she was battered and beaten the daylights out of her. And we called SVU. They came. They handled it as if she was anyone else. Um, so the idea that uh, I hope the public doesn't have that idea, that misplaced idea, that uh, the cops don't care. No, these girls are, um, many of them have... Uh, um, issues with, say, narcotics or, you know, unemployment, problem, other sorts of problems like that. And when I was a patrolman in the 4-6, uh, I'd see them on the midnight to 8 shift. And uh, you, you felt sympathy for them because these girls were in danger all the time working Jerome Avenue, walking up and down, meeting, meeting these seedy-looking guys. And uh, I felt sorry because somewhere along the line, you know, maybe they wanted to be a nurse or a pilot when they were kids. And now they're 20 years old. And they're hooking. And uh, something went, terribly went wrong in their lives. And a lot of times it seemed to be narcotics. And so a lot of cops, a lot of detectives, SVU, everybody has sympathy for these people because they're not hurting anybody. And yet they're the ones getting beaten on. And Phil's right. They, they see so much. And if they're actually comfortable talking to you, they'll talk to you and they'll give you names and license plate numbers and descriptions of cars and what the person, physical description of a person driving it, you know, and, and that sort of thing. They're, they're a font of information, and they are not treated as second-class citizens in the NYPD. Absolutely. Uh, K.H. Walker, Bill, in Canada, they stayed charges against Willie Pickton in Vancouver because victim who survived was only a prostitute, and prosecutors said she was not credible. You know, K.H. Walker, I don't think that it necessarily you could say it was totally because uh, she was a prostitute that they didn't move There's forward. There's got to be someone, more to that. Yeah, if someone can be so addicted to drugs uh, that they're not credible, or someone and, could just not be a credible witness, and then it's very difficult to use them as a witness. Melanie, you want to comment on that being an attorney? Yeah, I, I am going to say that I think that he specifically targeted these women because they were I don't know. People are saying they don't like the term sex workers. They don't like the term prostitutes. I don't know. Uh, women of the evening escorts, because many of the women that he targeted had addiction problems. They were um, 
separated from their families. They were, uh, you know, far from home. They were less likely to be believed if if they escaped and they were less likely to be reported missing immediately. So I think that he had a very specific target. And people are saying also in the chat that he's on Tinder and that there's a lot of, you know, girls for hire on Tinder. I didn't I don't know that for a fact, but I think that he targeted these women specifically for those reasons. And I think back in 2010, I think, you know, it was different 2007. You know, I think that maybe they didn't take it as seriously than they would have if it was some rich girl from the North Shore whose father was a, a famous something or other. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no. I mean, I think uh, we some, have to, you know, some truth to that. To However, I just don't. In my experience, I haven't seen the homicide investigators that said, oh, this is only a prostitute. I'm not going to work as hard because her life didn't mean anything. Yeah. I've Billy, never I seen... said it the other night when, when uh, you know, you have a homicide, you're not dealing with the victim. The victim is dead. You're dealing with the family members and you feel mm -hmm. the pain of the family. A, a mother comes to you or a brother or wife, whatever it is, and they, they want justice. You know, you see that they're broken. When you deliver the bad news, let's say, too, I mean, you see people, their whole world is turned upside down. So that's the part, the emotion that drives the detectives to try and get justice for the victim, yes, but also for the families. And listen, I've done cases where I was trying to get justice for, let's say, a drug dealer or an organized crime member that was probably notorious, but you're doing it for the families and, you know, you got to get justice. Uh, sometimes uh, your victim is not always uh, an upstanding citizen, but unfortunately, uh, that's the way, you know, uh, criminal uh, homicide investigation is. But uh, it, it never changed the way that we looked at a case or investigated a case, depending Absolutely on who the victim not. was. Marsha Greger, I just want to uh, mention this. No one says former attorney, former hairdresser, former cook. Why always bring it up when it's an escort? And I'm going to explain to you exactly why. Because it's part of the crime. It's exactly. part of why they're of being course. targeted. Exactly. No one is no serial killer is targeting attorneys or hairdressers or cooks. They are targeting sex workers but that if, is but if they were if they were targeting let's say hairdresser then we would we would be talking about the fact that these victims were hairdressers so he was targeting them because of their sex industry right because this workers. becomes that is exactly part of his exactly. mo his method of operation. of operation that is how we work cases in criminal in, in police work and i don't mean to i'm not talking down to you i'm just explaining why it's very important to know you're answering yes, the question He's yeah. targeting he's targeting sex workers. Very, very important to know that. And that's part of the investigation. Uh, Mike. Yeah, Billy, you know, sex workers are the probably the most vulnerable uh, people out there. You know, your children are very vulnerable, the elderly. And we all know the abuse that occurs with them. But the sex workers are all young. Um, a lot of them don't have any money. They may have addictions. As you say, they may not be reported uh, missing very quickly may go, especially if they're in their 20s, they're not like, say, 17-year-olds that get off the bus at the Transit Authority bus terminal, you know, in Midtown, um, and they're coming from out of town, and they might get reported by the families quick. But here, if you got a girl in the early 20s, and she's not speaking to her family, she drifts away from her family, They no, nobody really in her family might not even un realize that she's a person's been missing maybe a couple of months. And so all that time, their body may be... Uh, you know, and all the evidence is uh, decomposing. 
So um, they are the most vulnerable and they're the, the least uh, people who are going to be missed quickly. And so therefore, it, you know, if you're looking for a vulnerable person to uh, pick on as a six foot four, 300 pound guy, uh, a skinny little girl as an escort is probably the, the, the target to pick. You, you know, know, Mike, it, it goes back historically. It goes right back to Jack the Ripper. Who yeah. was Jack the Ripper targeting? He was targeting sex workers. Well, the, back then, it was called prostitutes. It was, you know, now that seems like an, a, a politically incorrect word to use. But in the Jack the Ripper's day, so it, there's, his, there's history to this. There's historically serial killers have targeted uh, sex workers. For all the reasons, Mike, that you just listed, for all the reasons, yeah. Phil, that you just listed, Melanie, I'm going to give you a chance to weigh in on this. So I, I had a question for you guys because uh, I'm 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 not saying that they wouldn't take a murder investigation seriously because it was a sex worker. I'm saying that the missing persons case might not be taken as seriously because they were a sex worker, and these women were also adults. They were all over 21. So I think. You know, Maureen Brainerd Barnes went missing in 2007. Her body was not recovered until 2000, December of 2010, which is when the four of them were discovered within two days of each other. You know, Melissa Bartholomew from the Bronx went missing in 2009. Shannon Gilbert, then Shannon Gilbert goes missing in May of 2010, June of 2010 for Megan Water. Do you think that missing person cases aren't taken maybe as seriously because – these women, a lot of them, and I'm not saying these specific women, are addicts. They are runaways. They are trying to estrange themselves from their families. And they've taken on a profession that, you know, is not as looked upon as as uh, kindly as, let's say, you know, more white-collar professions. Melanie, you know something? Right in the procedure of missing persons for the NYPD, it tells you what missing persons are not. And one of the things they are not are 18 years of age or older who have left home for un, for reasons unknown. Right. But the only way that they can get the police to move on something like that is to say, there's foul play. She was kidnapped or this or that. But if they just say she's over 18 and we don't know what she did, she was going out with a friend, they're not going to take a missing persons court, uh, report just based right on the police procedure. They tell you a missing person is not this. And I what I just spoke about they're right. not and unless the complainant says oh you know she ind indicated an intention of committing suicide or her boyfriend is very violent he was you know some reason other than she was just out partying then the police are not going to take a report mike you can speak of this you were a sergeant yeah billy because you know used to be many, many years ago, someone had to be missing 24 hours before you took a report. And you're right. If there is a factor like mental health issues, uh, medication issues where they need and they're a younger person, they need medication, you know, then you'll go after them. But uh, I, I remember I had a, a case of a, of a 17 year old boy who went on a date uh, at night and uh, the next morning uh, he didn't come home. So his mom called. And I, my partner and I went to the house and we said, what's going on? And he said, well, he went on a date with a girl last night and he's 17 years old and he hasn't, he hasn't returned home yet. So, you know, my partner and I are looking at each other like, well, maybe it was a long date, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, so we started asking her, you know, um, does he have any mental health issues? Does he have drug and alcohol issues? Is he on medication? Has he been under threat by anybody? And she said, no, 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 no. 
And I said, you know, we're not we're not going to take the report. You know, and I, I felt bad, but I'm like, you know, what do you do? You you know, a lot of a lot of times people go missing, and uh, they'll return, you know, within a day or two. Maybe the person wanted to get away. I don't mean to, uh, you know, unfortunately, when you get cases like this where the person's missing and then they end up dead, but uh, you have those. But um, if the police actually investigated with with the runaway unit and the missing persons unit every single time someone says my daughter my son even you know 18 19 20 21 around that age went missing you know you'd, you'd never have time to do anything else and mike it, you're right you would investigate no other cases except missing persons you're 100 percent right. right let me play a little bit of this guys those are the words of suspected serial killer rex Hurman asking police as he was about to be put in jail whether his arrest was getting publicity. And this new information comes as authorities now say they believe it's possible Hurman has been committing murders for more than a decade and that there could be more victims. Police have also been on a hunt for, quote, souvenirs. They believe Hurman may have kept at this storage locker in Long Island. The search coming after police discovered a hidden vault in the basement of the 59-year-old married father of two, a vault filled with hundreds of guns. His home is just seven miles from where the remains of 11 people, including a toddler, were discovered, many of them bound and wrapped in burlap sacks. Bryn Gingras is out front. Investigators not done digging through the home of Rex Hewerman, the man authorities say is behind the serial killings that have haunted a New York community for more than a decade. He intended to commit these crimes. He intended to cover up these crimes. Inside the Long Island home, Hurman shared with his wife and daughter, sources say police found a locked door. And behind that? Over 200 guns. Uh, he had an arsenal in, his, uh, in a vault that he had downstairs. Far more than the 92 guns Hurman registered in the state. Investigators also seen removing an encased doll-like figure and a Playboy magazine from the home. Sources tell CNN police are scouring a nearby storage unit. They say they're looking for possible souvenirs or trophies he may have kept after the killings. We uh, have ex executed a number of search warrants. So right now we have a flood of information and a flood of evidence coming in. And it's going to take us a while to sort of go through all of that. The 59-year-old architect is charged with killing three women, sex workers, whose bodies were found tied up and stuffed in camouflage burlap sacks and dumped along a desolate beach area more than a decade ago. The district attorney says they're close to charging him with the fourth victim in what became known as the Gilgo Four Murders. It's a shocker. I mean, it's a real eye-opener. With a newly formed task force dedicated to the case, a break came earlier this year when DNA from a discarded pizza crust matched a hair found in one of those burlap sacks, according to police. Authorities also believe Hewerman used burner phones and fake email accounts to research his victims, their murders, images of child abuse, and at times even taunted one woman's family by calling them after her death using her phone. The man, is a, he's a demon. And it's really hard to get into the mind of somebody that's capable of committing the crimes that he committed. Other evidence? Witness testimony. Investigators say they have someone who ID'd Hurman's Chevrolet Avalanche seen here parked in front of his home over a decade ago as connected to one killing. That witness also describing the 6-4 Hurman as an ogre, according to court paperwork. The only thing I can tell you that he did say 
uh, as he was in tears was, I didn't do this. Kierman pleaded not guilty to the charges, his lawyer calling the evidence against him circumstantial. And we've learned Hewerman is on suicide watch at the jail where he is being. We've heard, uh, we've heard that before. He's on suicide watch, you know. You know, one of the things, folks, that uh, for everyone listening uh, here is that the police now have all the time that they need because he's not going anywhere. He is not getting bailed, right? So they can take their time and methodically continue to investigate that. One of the first things I also said was, and I'm sure they did this. I'm not telling the Suffolk County police. I'm just letting you guys know. They should do a teletype message to every police department in the country. Boom, send it out uh, by teletype. This is what we're looking for. We're looking. This is his M.O. If you have any similar homicides to that, uh, give the Suffolk County police a call. He's in CODIS now, which is the combined DNA index system. I don't know how accurate that is. That just goes out and all cases will report and they go, oh, we got a case here, we got a case. I don't know how that actually works. I know it's run by the FBI, but I think a teletype message to every police department in the country that may have a homicide and, and marry that to his travel, marry that to his, my, Professor Michael Geary, his financial records. Right. Where has he flown to? Where has he traveled to? Obviously, South Carolina and Nevada. We got to be all over those states because he owns property in South Carolina and he has a timeshare in Nevada. So all of these things, they you cannot give up. You got to keep going and keep going because there's families out there with missing loved ones and potentially he could be the uh, person that is responsible for them being missing. I have heard that it's very expensive to put to upload the DNA into CODIS and that it's not done in every case. And so there may be, yeah, can you speak to that? Because I just want to, you know, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. And so there's a lot of DNA from victims that has not been uploaded into CODIS unless they have a suspect, right? Or something like that. It's expensive. That, that's why yeah. I think what Billy's talking about with regard to notifying all the police departments in the country that we have this uh, serial killer in custody. His DNA is in CODIS. Now, if you have something you think could be linked to it, submit it and maybe we'll get a, uh, a hit. Takes a long time for that those results yeah. to come back, right? I mean, but no, how about the... I, I just wanted to make one quick comment about missing persons. Uh, we were talking about wh whether or not missing person cases get, uh, you know, uh, there's a certain category, but there's a thing called extenuating circumstances. If one of these family members goes into a police station and says, listen, my sister is in the sex trade, but she never does this. She's been missing for two days, hasn't been heard from. She's not answering her cell phone. I think that that would prompt a missing persons report. And then if, uh, a little further, three, four days down the line, now uh, calls are coming in from her cell phone. We haven't heard from her. And this person is taunting us. That 100% would uh, qualify for a uh, missing persons report and an investigation. Absolutely. Uh, Calcio Fan 10. Bill, as this is a national news, wouldn't all law enforcement agencies be researching records for possible links? Not necessarily, because now are you going to take it from the, from the media or are you going to take it from the horse's mouth? from the police. The media reports a lot of stuff that isn't true. So when they get it from the horse's mouth, which is the police department reporting it, teletype message. If you have a homicide that fits this MO, this is his signature. If you have any of that, give the Suffolk County police a call. The DNA should be, you know, his DNA is in CODIS. 
we could can compare uh, DNA against this case. Don't they can't rely again? We said the media is our best friend and our worst enemy. We can't rely on the and the police reading newspapers. It's it's not that's not the professional way to do it. Investigation into alleged Gilgo Beach serial killer Rex Hewerman is expanding to a fourth state, New Jersey. Authorities are looking into his possible ties to Atlantic City and a string of unsolved killings of prostitutes. They're also interviewing other sex workers currently behind bars about their interactions with Hewerman. He had reached out to them uh, to, for sex. They uh, took the calls but did not uh, meet with him. And now, a week after Hewerman's arrest on charges, he killed three women in Long Island, New York, who worked as escorts. His wife of more than 25 years has filed for divorce. It comes as investigators search land that Hewerman owns in South Carolina, looking for any evidence that could link him to the killings. They've already seized this Chevy truck. Anything from hair to uh, a trophy, souvenir, jewelry, uh, anything that can help us uh, connect uh, these victims to that vehicle will be instrumental and strengthen the case. Police in Las Vegas, where Huberman has a timeshare, are also taking a new look at unsolved cases. Huberman has pleaded not guilty to the three killings in Long Island. He's been named the prime suspect in a fourth murder. So it's it, it, there it is. It's it's. Uh... They're coming up with cases in other jurisdictions. Again, we need to marry his records, his travel records, to the, to all of these things so that it, it makes it easier for the police to check out where has he been. Let's meet with the police in that state. Phil, go right to commercial here. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Now, listen, if you have found yourself in some type of a jam and you're in need of a criminal defense attorney, there's nobody better than Joe Murray. Joe Murray is not only a fantastic uh, defense attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. So if you want to get a hold of Joe, his website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe is a big supporter of police off the cuff real crime stories. And he is also, as I said, a terrific criminal defense attorney. Thank you. Uh, so, you know, some of the things that I actually didn't even get through all of my um, my list. One of the other things I was saying was notify Interpol, which if he traveled outside this country, Iceland. You know, he could have. Yeah, he could have bodies in Iceland, you know, and they wouldn't know. So we talk about following through this investigation, the investigation, the hard part's over, but there's still. A lot of work to be done. Mike. Billy, I was, as we were looking at the uh, video, my thoughts are about Atlantic City, New Jersey. And I think that might be something that uh, really worthwhile looking into because it's close by. It's only, you know, a three hour drive from, or maybe a little over a three hour drive down the, down the uh, turnpike. So, um, and if there are a, a number of cases that they've already noticed, wasn't like maybe one or two, but they, they've noticed that there's a number of uh, missing female prostitutes uh, along the boardwalk area there. Um, I think that's probably uh, fertile ground for in, a further investigation. And I hope that they have some sort of piece of DNA evidence, if possible, to tie them to it. Um, I'm not sure about South Carolina. I, I don't know, unless he engaged 
in uh, some sort of uh, engage with the prostitutes down there. I don't think he's the kind of person that would transport anything from New York to South Carolina to bury it or to burn it or to destroy it. I think he would do everything somewhere near his home. Um, but uh, so I think Atlantic City probably is a real good potential uh, area for uh, maybe pos uh, uh, further charges in terms of missing prostitutes. You know, Mike, I'm a real firm believer in MO. And, and when MO is supported by signature, I think it's so powerful. And basically, folks, modus operandi, method of operation, he does commits his crimes in a certain way. And then in his case, the signature, the green uh, burlap camouflage bags to wrap the bodies. If these jurisdictions have any similarities to his MO and his signature, you know, even if they don't, but if the MO is the same and the signature is not, they have to consider that this he could be a possibility. Phil. You know, Billy, uh, the way that the bodies were found beside the burlap bags, they were bound with either belts or tape. So, again, uh, slightly different, maybe. It's not all the bodies were found in the burlap. Uh, maybe he ran out of burlap bags, whatever it was. So I think that that's very, very important, the points that you're making. Uh, if something is similar, it should definitely be looked at. And if there is DNA evidence available, throw it into CODIS, see if there's a match. Uh, you know, one of the reports that you played, uh, they called it circumstantial evidence. I mean, one hair on a person's body, yeah, I guess that could be considered circumstantial because it could be transferred. We have four hairs, three from his wife, one from him. I think it's a little bit more than circumstantial. And that's the stuff that we know about. There may be other evidence that we don't know about. And then if you look at the cell phone evidence and the searches that he did, I think that those are all circumstantial parts of the evidence. And I think it's just going to all mount up. And the way it looks right now, they got a pretty strong case against him. Melanie, you know something? I speak about uh, a lot of cases we cover, of course, Brian Koberger, uh, Alec Murdoch. We've covered these major cases across the country. And we hear that term, circumstantial evidence, for which inferences are drawn. That is the definition of circumstantial evidence. However, we know, as people in law enforcement, you and Mike know as attorneys, circumstantial evidence can be super powerful evidence when it's piled one on top of another. Yeah, well, Melody. circumstantial evidence doesn't lose their memory. You know, it doesn't lose its memory. Uh, cell phone data, forensic data, that's all circumstantial evidence. Really, the only thing that's direct evidence, Professor Mike Geary, is eyewitness testimony, right? That's or right. perhaps a videotape of the person actually committing the crime. So that's really only the direct evidence that you're going to get. Mike, if you have any other ideas for direct evidence, tell me. But eyewitness testimony yeah. is one of the most unreliable forms of mm -hmm. testimony. That's yeah. Right. So when you've got somebody dead to rights with their cell phone records and their DNA and their hair, and it can be more powerful with when with the in the totality of the evidence, because we talk about the totality of the evidence to convict somebody. It's very rare that you have direct evidence in a, in a criminal case or a murder case, right, Mike? Yeah, I love it. I'm sorry, go ahead, Phil. No, what I was going to say is think about what we read in the affidavit. Uh, there were times when the burner phone is being used and his own personal cell phone is in the same location. So that's like a double whammy. He's got and the victim's phone. Yeah, yes, exactly. So, so you, have, you have, those are considered circumstantial, but to me... I'd like that better than eyewitness testimony. As you said, Melanie, a lot of times eyewitness testimony is not that reliable. When you have that type of electronic evidence, cell phones, 
all pinging in the same location at the same time. I mean, that's, uh, to me, indisputable. Yeah, you know, and defense attorneys, they're just doing their job. When the defense attorney, Mr. Green, says, you know, this is a wildly circumstantial evidence case and, you know, like the Brian Koberger case, uh, that they're doing their job. That That's what they're supposed to say. And, you know, and as uh, as um, Rex Herman's uh, attorney said, uh, we can't wait to get to court here to prove his innocence. <laughs> I, I bet. I bet. You know, come on. But the term circumstantial evidence, it's a term that defense attorneys always use to try to uh, get the public to, re- to think about, wow, they don't have any direct evidence. Oh, my goodness. It's all theoretical. Maybe the police are mistaken. DNA? Mistaken. Cell phone data? Mistaken. I don't think so. The wife's hair. You know, what do you right. guys? Come on, right, the wife's hair. Come you on. know, what we just watched the, the that short little video of him asking, "Is this in the news?" From a behavioral, I know none of us are mm-hmm. behavioral analysts or uh, forensic psychologists, but what do you make of that? Is this in the news? Is it, would a normal person ask that? He's looking for oh, fame. Look yeah, it's typical of a serial killer. They yeah. want they want to be Narcissist. famous. I, I, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's what I think it is. But talking about, you know, the media being your best friend, right? Because that's, you know, I know you like to stay on topic, Bill, so I'm going to stay on topic with you. Back in 2010, okay, Amber Costello uh, lived with two roommates. She lived with um, two guys and a girl. They pulled a ruse on him. I don't know if you've talked about this, but he came to the house for her services he puts the money down. One of the guys comes out, pretends to be an, a, her jealous boyfriend and chases him out of the house. So the next day he comes back and says, you know, I want my money or whatever. Come out without your cell phone. She leaves. And he's the last person to see her alive. The roommate, the roommate gives a description in 2010 of a man who looks like an ogre. He's six foot four to six foot six. He's got bushy hair. He's got big glasses and he drives a green Chevy avalanche of a first edition. Had they put that description out in the media, it's my thought that they would have found this guy a lot sooner because how many of those guys are there out there? I don't remember that description being released in 2010. Do you? No. They were keeping this case very close to the vest. And like you said, had that description been out there, people in Massapequa have been like, there's this dude on my block. He's exactly looks like Shrek. He's like six (laughs) and he drives this green Chevy Avalanche. Like, the fact that he still has now. two green Chevy avalanches 14 years later is shocking to me. He still has these cars. You know, that would seem like, yeah, like, wow. Why? And like you, what you said, Melanie, is that uh, back then, I don't think they brought the FBI in on the case. There was a lot of turmoil going on within the Suffolk County Police Department at the time. And they didn't want to bring the FBI in. And there's many reasons to bring the FBI in. And one of them is, A, their expertise, B, their resources. The FBI means the federal government big bucks, right? And they have toys that local police departments don't have, like the the tools that are able to search these cell phones. Amazing. They have the capability to do things and have the equipment to do things that local police departments don't. So not bringing them in back then was a huge, huge mistake. And now you see, uh, and everyone hears us say it all the time, uh, Rodney Harrison from the NYPD comes in and starts this task force. And lo and behold, 
a year and a half later, they got an arrest on this case. Was that accidental, Mike Geary? Billy, no, it's professional. It's the beginning of real professional coordination between multi-agencies. You're right. They probably, Suffolk probably handled it in, internally and uh, did not seek help maybe from NASA or from uh, the state police even. And so that that's sad because, you know, Melanie's right. This guy wasn't five foot nine, brown hair, brown eyes, you know, 155 pounds, you know, driving a, a silver Chevrolet, four-door sedan. No, this guy is, like you say, Shrek. Um, and this that's sad because it was, in, in hindsight, it was a mistake. And uh, it wasn't really, it, it lengthened the misery for everybody. And thank goodness Rodney Harrison did what he did, got everybody together. And he's, as you could see, within like six months or whatever, his name pops up. And then after that, they're just watching them, watching them, watching them, watching them, watching them, and putting together all the cell phone data. And it's because that takes months. And you got the DNA data, uh, DNA analysis. That's fantastic. They, they did a great job. But you know something, Mike, and, and again, I, I, we none of us here worked on this case. And when we see that um, 13 years or 16 years of investigation was synopsized to a 32-page report, and I know it's not that simple. I know it's not that simple. However, that the bail uh, application report, as Melanie, you read on your show the other day, it synopsizes almost this whole case pretty distinctly, succinctly. Connects and, the dots for sure. Yeah, and connects the dots. And it makes it all sound so, so very simple. And I know it's not. I've worked these major investigations, and I know it's never this simple. But this 32-page document, anyone that's listening right now, it's the bail application. You can get it online. I advise everyone that's a true crime aficionado, a fan a subscriber to whatever show, yeah. read it. Yes, absolutely read it. Or go watch this, my show and I'll read it this, to you. This, this, no, but this case, <laughs> that's right. Mel, you, can, you, can, you can go to sleep and Melanie will read you, read you to sleep like a, a bedtime story. But it it's really makes it pretty clear because this is a very, very confusing case. Phil, go ahead. Billy, just think about now, that's the stuff they put in the affidavit. In the days since, it's a week now, think of the other stuff that they may have recovered uh, in his home, in that vehicle. So there's going to be a ton, a ton of evidence in this case. But I just want to point out from that affidavit, some of the things, the, the horrible things that he was uh, Googling, a uh, girl begging for rape, a uh, 10-year-old schoolgirl. I mean, a lot of very, very disgusting things. The point I'm trying to make is, is that it appears that he manifested into this. You know, serial killers don't wake up one morning and go on a rampage like this guy did and, and kill, you know, a dozen women like that. It's something that takes place over a long period of time. That's why I agree with Melanie. I agree with Bill. And I, I agree with Mike that we think there's going to be other victims, perhaps before and maybe since these victims were found. I mean, if, if you look at that 32-page uh, uh, affidavit, it, it really behooves you if you're into true crime or you're an investigator like myself or any of the people on the panel. It's so interesting to read, and it really shows how they put this case together and how they got to the point where they arrested Rex Hellerman. Yeah, it's actually it is pretty amazing. You know, folks, I just want to say, uh, when, whenever we cover these cases... We, want, we always like to make it a point to never, ever, ever forget the victims and forget who it, what this is about. 
and it's about the victims and it's about the victims' families. And these four here become known as the Gilgo Four. And not that, that that's not, they were human beings. They're not the Gildo, Gilgo Four. They were human beings. They're still human beings. They were, they were killed by this, this savage animal. And it's Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Bartellome, Anne Boleyn Costello, and Megan Waterman. And uh, we on Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories, we've worked homicides. You know, we, we did this for a living for a long time. And uh, in the book, Practical Homicide Investigation, I always quote it. Vernon Gebreth, the author, says, we work for God, you know, because the, the deceased, we can't do anything for them. We can't save them. We work for God. We work to find out the evil that did this. And well, we will always mention the victims on Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Guys, I'm going to give everyone a go around. I'm going to go, Melanie, your final words. Justice for the victims. That's what I'm going to say. Justice for the Very victims, for Megan, Maureen, Melissa, Amber, and for all the other ones that have not yet been connected to him. I think there's going to be an indictment coming down on Maureen Brainer Barnes any day. So mm-hmm. let's hope for that. Well, we are hoping for that, Melanie. Thank you. Phil, your final words. I want to give a quick shout out to one of the moderators, Kim Alliston. She does a tremendous job in the chat. And about two months ago, I lost my brother-in-law. She sent a card through the Franzos to me. We got it, Kim. Thank you so much. Your words were well-received by myself, my wife, and my family. Thank you very, very much for all you do for us. And with regard to this case, we're going to see a lot of developments going forward. Uh, there's going to be a lot of evidence that might be public or whatever. And we're going to be jumping right on it. Hopefully, uh, you know, there may be some other victims that uh, this guy could be attributed to. If they're out there, we could, ta- you know, connect the dots. And again, justice for the victims, like Melanie said. And uh, let's see where this case goes. Absolutely. Professor Mike, your final words. Billy, justice has been delayed in this case. For way too long, far too long, but hopefully justice won't be denied and the families will get the justice that they deserve. That's good, Mike. Mike very well said. You're actually very sexy without your glasses on. <laughs> I thought I'd be a little with them on. <laughs> yeah, you look more, you do look more professorial with them on, but you, you know. I thought we it was the show was so serious. I thought we needed a little levity right there, folks. <laughs> we did. We I, I want to thank I want to thank everyone uh, for tuning in tonight. This is a very uh, difficult case, you know, and it's a very emotional case for a lot of people. And um, we we enjoy it, believe it or not, using our expertise in explaining these cases. We got Professor Mike Geary retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi, and of course, attorney, actress, mother of five, and Long Island native uh, Melanie Little. I want to thank all of them for coming on the show tonight. Folks, thank you for tuning in. Have a great night, and God bless. Good night, everyone. Good night. One episode.